Good morning, Grace. We are back in First Peter, picking up our series again called Exiles. So turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 1. I need to let you know something about myself, and it's this. I love Chick-fil-A. You have to know that about me. I love Jesus. I love the Twilight Zone. I told you last week that I love 80s power ballads, and I love Chick-fil-A, and that's about all you really need to know about me. I love Chick-fil-A, and I crave Chick-fil-A all the time. Have you ever eaten at Chick-fil-A? I hope you have, because it's a foretaste of heaven. For real, it is. It's a foretaste of heaven. Chick-fil-A will be in heaven. It has to. The wedding supper of the Lamb, I believe, will be catered by Chick-fil-A. Now, I know they're not as popular as In-N-Out here in California, and I know the closest Chick-fil-A is in Santa Barbara, but if you've not eaten a Chick-fil-A before, that needs to be on your bucket list. You will find Chick-fil-A restaurants all over the South. They are all over Texas, where we came from, and we need one in Santa Maria. Somebody please open up a Chick-fil-A in Santa Maria. I can promise you two things if you open up a Chick-fil-A in Santa Maria. Number one, you will become rich. You will make a lot of money. So one of you businessmen, businesswomen out there needs to get on this stat. We need a Chick-fil-A in Santa Maria. Number two, the second thing I can promise you, I will name my next child after you if you open up a Chick-fil-A in Santa Maria. We have six kids, and I think we're done. Not sure. I think we're done. But if we have one more child, I will name my baby after you if you open up a Chick-fil-A in Santa Maria. I love Chick-fil-A. In fact, I believe the title to this sermon should be on every sign outside Chick-fil-A. It should say Chick-fil-A, and then this, the sermon title, should be underneath Chick-fil-A on every sign. It should say Chick-fil-A, and then this, come, sinners, to the gospel feast. Because Chick-fil-A is good news for hungry sinners. Chick-fil-A is a gospel feast for hungry sinners. And did you know that when a Chick-fil-A opens a new store, the first 100 customers get free Chick-fil-A for a year? It's so well known now that when a store opens, there are so many people clamoring to get free Chick-fil-A for a year that they have you show up at 6 o'clock and they usually, it's the first 100 people, usually there's more than 100, so they do this lottery system and if you get picked out of the lottery system, you have to camp in their parking lot and they rope it off for 24 hours until the grand opening. And if you do that and you make it to 24 hours, then you get a free Chick-fil-A meal uh, once for every week for an entire year. And I love Chick-fil-A so much that I got in on one of these openings once. The staff at the church I served in Texas went to an opening, and three of the four of us were chosen. Out of hundreds of people, three out of four of us were chosen. So we camped out at Chick-fil-A for 24 hours, 
and we turned it into a staff retreat, and then we split the goods at the end of it. And they feed you. They feed you breakfast that morning. They feed you lunch. They feed you dinner. They give you a midnight snack. They give you ice cream, all the sweet tea that you want. And so the staff at the church in Texas that we did this. So when I tell you that I love Chick-fil-A, I mean, I really love Chick-fil-A. I was willing to camp out in a tent in their parking lot for 24 hours in the cold in order to get free food. And I even went back to a second opening we did, and I was the only one chosen, but we decided that, you know, splitting 52 meals between four people wasn't worth it, so we didn't do it. But I love Chick-fil-A. But I do have a few issues with Chick-fil-A. I have issues with California Chick-fil-A's because the Chick-fil-A's in California do not know how to make sweet tea. They just don't know how to make good southern sweet tea. I mean, come on, California Chick-fil-A's. Sweet is in the name. It's called sweet tea, so it needs to be sweet. In Texas, they do sweet tea right. And my theory is that the California Chick-fil-A's look at the ingredients, the directions on how to make the sweet tea, and they think to themselves, there's no way we're supposed to put this much sugar in here. This must be a typo. Let's cut it in half. Because their sweet tea is just not as good. So that's one of my issues with Chick-fil-A, but it's more of a local issue. My second issue that I have with Chick-fil-A, and I'm really craving Chick-fil-A right now, aren't you? <laughs> aren't you craving Chick-fil-A right now? Couldn't you go for some waffle fries right now? Chicken sandwich, nuggets, sweet tea, cookies, and cream milkshake. I could go for a number one right now. And that's exactly why I have a second issue with Chick-fil-A, and it's this. Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. Never have more profane words been uttered. Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. What an awful sentence. So today, right now, as you and I crave Chick-fil-A, we cannot fix or fulfill that desire after church by driving to Santa Barbara because the Chick-fil-A in Santa Barbara, like all Chick-fil-A's, is closed on Sundays. I hate that. I love that they want to honor the Sabbath and honor God's word, but I have needs. And I really do believe that God has blessed them as a company because they honor the Sabbath and they don't open their stores but sometimes I have needs on Sundays. I have needs, Chick-fil-A. I have needs, Dan Cathy, Mr. President of Chick-fil-A. So if you're listening to this sermon, Dan Cathy, and I doubt that you are, but if you are, just know that sometimes I have needs on Sundays. And so here we are on the Sabbath, on a Sunday, seriously craving Chick-fil-A, and we can do nothing about it until tomorrow, and even then we'll have to drive an hour to do it which I have no problem doing at all. I will drive an hour for Chick-fil-A. But here we are, it's Sunday, it's the Sabbath, and Chick-fil-A is closed. And I am seriously craving Chick-fil-A right now, and I imagine you are too. And if you aren't craving Chick-fil-A right now, or you don't like Chick-fil-A, I'm not sure you can be a Christian. That's just my <laughs> humble opinion. But I'm sitting here seriously craving Chick-fil-A, and most of you, you, the believers here, are craving Chick-fil-A. And what a cruel pastor I am by bringing it up and showing you this picture. I mean, look at that goodness. 
But sometimes you crave Chick-fil-A so bad that you actually forget that it's Sunday. And you get excited about Chick-fil-A and your excitement causes you to forget that it's Sunday and your excitement causes you to forget that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays and so you drive there and as soon as you hit the parking lot, you remember Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. And you might utter a bad word in that moment because some of y'all are sinners. Comedian Tim Hawkins has captured beautifully the agony of driving into the Chick-fil-A parking lot and being crushed by the reality that they are closed on Sundays. You can watch this clip on YouTube. But Tim Hawkins sings a song about Chick-fil-A to the tune of the Beatles song, Yesterday. Chick-fil-A, I could eat there seven times a day Where the people laugh and children play Oh, I'm in love with Chick-fil-A. Suddenly, I need waffle fries in front of me with some nuggets and a large sweet tea. Oh, Chick-fil-A, you set me free. Kids, get in the van so we can go there today. But their stores are closed. Oh, I know, because it's Sunday. Chick-fil-A, what a dirty, rotten trick to play. Now I have to settle for Subway. Oh, I'm in love with Chick-fil-A. He does a better job at it than I do. But... What a dirty, rotten trick to play, Chick-fil-A. You're closed on Sundays. And what a dirty, rotten trick to play as a pastor. To keep talking about Chick-fil-A over and over and over again so that by now some of you have a serious hankering for it. I did this on purpose. I wanted to show you how meditation and dwelling on something can actually change your desires. Like the mad men on Madison Avenue in the 1960s, they knew that advertising was the key to selling products. And they knew that if you saw something and heard something over and over again, then eventually you would begin craving what they were selling. And that's just what I did to you. I wanted to show you how thinking about something will lead to craving something. What a dirty, rotten trick to play. And so now that I have you craving Chick-fil-A, let me give you our big idea today. It's this. Crave the sweet milk of the gospel. Crave and hanker for and yearn for the sweet milk of the gospel. In the same way that many of us crave Chick-fil-A, we should crave the sweet milk of the gospel. We should be like babies who crave their mother's milk. And that's exactly what Peter is going to tell his readers today. In 1 Peter 2, 2, he says, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter is simply talking about gospel milk. And gospel milk has no expiration date. Gospel milk does not spoil. Gospel milk is eternal. 
What we need every day of our lives is gospel milk. That is actually the key to living together in community with one another in the family of God. It's craving and then feasting upon gospel milk. What we'll see today is that it is the gospel that gets us into the family of God and it is the gospel that keeps us from killing one another in the family of God. The gospel makes us alive and brings us into the family of God. And it's the gospel that keeps us from killing one another as we live together in the family of God. The gospel is the key in how we deal with our siblings here in the family of God. And Peter is going to show us just how central the gospel is to every aspect of our salvation. From top to bottom and from beginning to end, it's all about the good news of Jesus Christ. And now let me show you where I'm getting all of that. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 22, and hear the word of the Lord. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What Peter is saying when he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth is this. Here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, since you have been born again according to God's mercy, which is what he said in chapter one, verse three, since you have experienced salvation, since you have been adopted into the family of God, where you call on God as father, that he talked about earlier in chapter one, since you've been adopted into the family of God, where you have a sincere love for your brothers. Since all of that is true of you, Peter is saying, then love one another from the heart. Since you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, by your obedience to the gospel, then love one another. And what is obedience to the truth? It's obedience to the gospel. We have believed the gospel and we have been born again because of the gospel. So Peter is saying, that we have been born again to love. Born again to love one another. He's saying that since we have been born again, since we have purified our souls, since we've been born again into God's family, where love is the key, then we should love one another because God is love. Peter is saying that we have been born again to love just like our Father. So we should love one another earnestly and from the heart because this is what we do in God's family. We love one another. That, that's how our family rolls. This is how our family rolls, Grace. Love is what we do in this family. We love one another. We love one another here. We love one another in this family. Or perhaps we should just admit that we struggle to love one another, right? That's probably a little more accurate than saying that we do love one another. We struggle to love one another because loving one another is hard to do, right? Loving other sinners is so hard to do. And that's why Peter is telling his readers to love one another because he knows that they are struggling to love one another just like every church struggles to love one another. Every church struggles to love one another. We're not unique, Grace, because 
we struggle to love one another. We're not unique. We're just like every other church. Why? Because loving other sinners is hard to do. And that's why Peter says, love one another from a pure heart. In other words, be genuine, be sincere, be real about the fact that you struggle to love other people. Loving other people is hard. Listen, y'all are hard for me to love. And it's not just you guys, okay? I don't want you to feel bad, okay, Grace? I don't want you to feel bad. It's not just you. Every person in my life is hard for me to love. You know why? Because I love me. I'm in love with me. Loving me is so easy. I don't get on my nerves. I love me. I'm cool. I'm awesome. It's everybody else that I have a problem with. And I have a problem with everybody else because in some way, everybody else is a threat to my little kingdom. I have built up my little kingdom of self where I sit on my throne and I want everyone to love me. I want everyone to serve me. I want everyone to do what I want. I want everyone to love what I love and I want everyone to hate what I hate. I want everyone to love me because I think I'm awesome. Don't you think I'm awesome? Please don't answer that. So we struggle to love one another, to love people, because we're all selfish sinners. And so how can Peter then call us to love one another earnestly and from the heart when he knows we're sinners and he knows that loving other people is so hard to do? How can Peter ask us to do something that is oftentimes difficult and sometimes seems downright impossible? How can Peter, knowing that loving other people is hard, how can Peter, knowing that we're all selfish sinners, how can he call on us to do something which is loving other people when he knows that loving other people is oftentimes difficult and sometimes it even seems downright impossible? Peter can call us to love others because Christian love is born in the same way that Christians are born again, through the gospel. And that's why Peter immediately brings the gospel into the conversation when he tells his readers to love one another. Look at verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We have been born again through the living and abiding word of God, which is the gospel. And it is that same gospel that will empower us to love other people. Christian love is born in the same way that Christians are born again, and that is through the gospel. So Peter urges us to love one another, but he grounds what he calls us to do in what God has already done for us. God has mercifully caused us to be born again through the gospel. So Peter grounds his command to love others in how God first loved us. He grounds this imperative, this commandment, what we are called to do, he grounds that in the indicative of what God has already done for us in the gospel in Christ Jesus. 
So it's the gospel at the beginning of our salvation, and it's the gospel throughout to the very end. We have been born again through the eternal word of God, Peter says, which he says is the good news that was preached to his audience. The Greek word for good news is the word gospel. We have been born again through the eternal word of God, through the eternal gospel, which has no expiration date. It does not spoil. It's eternal. It's forever. Revelations 14, 6 talk about an angel declaring the eternal gospel. We have been born again, not through perishable seed, but through imperishable seed, the eternal gospel. And even though we have been born again through the imperishable seed, we will still die because the curse of Adam, Adam's sin, is still on us. So we will all die. So Peter is saying that here, that every human being is like grass, like flowers. We come and go. We live and die. But there is something that is eternal, and that something is the word of the Lord, the gospel. And that something, the eternal gospel, has laid claim to our lives as believers. So the word of the Lord the eternal word of God, the gospel, gave us life in salvation and it continues to give us life in salvation. The gospel gave us life and it continues to give us life and that's why we are called to crave the sweet milk of the gospel. We are called to crave and feast upon the gospel because it is our life. It's our sustenance. It's how we survive. It's how we grow. It's how we are enabled to love others. And so when we dwell on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and all that he is for us, When we dwell on the gospel, when we remember what God has already done for us in Christ, it will empower us to do what God has called us to do and hear what he has called us to do in this passage is to love one another. And you'll never be able to love someone if you are guilted into it. The gospel has to be what moves you to love others. As Marcy Preheim says, No one is motivated long-term by guilt. Guilt may reach the behavior, but it will never reach the heart. No one is motivated long-term by guilt. Guilt will reach the behavior, possibly, but it will never reach the heart. And Peter knows this, which is why he is not guilting his readers to love one another. He's simply pointing out what God has already done for them in the gospel because Peter knows that this will enable them to love other people. Peter knows that the gospel is the only thing that will reach their hearts. And so what does that love look like? What does a sincere love for our brothers and sisters in the family of God look like? Peter tells us at the beginning of chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Notice the word so there. Notice the word so. Peter is saying that since we have been born again, 
We should love one another. And the way that we love one another is by putting away the things that he lists there in verse 1, which is malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. We love one another when we put these things away and we don't do these things. We love one another because we are focused on the gospel and therefore we put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. That means then, if you have malice in your heart toward another believer, another person, if you secretly want evil to befall them, calamity, to happen to them, if you rejoice when they suffer, or if you just think bad thoughts towards another person, you're not loving them. If you are deceptive and you hide the truth of who you are, if you fail to see yourself daily, moment by moment, in need of God's grace, and you have deceived yourself, if you cheat and trick people, If you deceive people with half-truths, you're not a loving person. If you are a hypocrite and you put on a show like you have it all together, like you are Mr. or Mrs. Spirituality, you have it together and other people don't. If they just get their act together, if you do that, you're not a loving person. If you envy others, envy their gifts, envy their talents, envy their life, and you're not loving your brothers or sisters in Christ. If you slander people and you run around talking behind people's backs and you don't go talk directly to the person who has offended you and instead you talk to everyone else, you're not a loving person. When these things crop up in our lives, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, when these things crop up in our lives, we prove That in that moment, at least, we have lost sight of the gospel. We prove that we have forgotten what God has already done for us in his son, Jesus. Ray Ortland said this on Twitter a few weeks ago. He said, what doesn't work? A church fighting over non-essentials while not rejoicing in the few glorious unifying essentials. What doesn't work, Ray Ortland says, it's when a church fights over non-essentials while not rejoicing and exulting in the few glorious unifying essentials. When we fight over the color of the carpet, when we fight over the style of music, when we fight over the kind of preaching that we hear, when we fight over the kind of toilet paper that's in the bathrooms, and believe me, churches have fought over all of these things. When we fight over these things, And when we fight over a myriad of other non-essentials, then we shouldn't be surprised when we wake up one day and these words describe our church. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Why fight over all these non-essentials when we have a few glorious, unifying essentials, the primary thing being the gospel? What would happen? What would happen to this church? What would this church look like if the gospel began to dominate our conversations? What would this church look like? What would we become if we started inserting Jesus into our conversations? What would this place look like if instead of talking about what other people have done, decisions they have made, things that they have said, 
what would this place look like? Instead of talking about what other people have done, we started talking more about what Jesus has done. What if we started talking about what Jesus has done for us? And we quit talking about how that person has offended us and they made that decision and they did this. What kind of church would we become if we just started talking about what Jesus has done for us? It's exciting to think about. When these things crop up in our lives, malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, we prove that we have lost sight of the gospel. We prove that we have forgot what God has done for us in Jesus. And the very thing that will keep us from doing these things that Peter lists in verse 1, the very thing that will keep us from doing these things, and not perfectly because I've already established the fact that we're all sinners, but the thing that will keep us from doing these things, the very thing that will enable us to stop doing these things is the gospel message. Preaching against these things will not change you. Preaching against malice, preaching against deceit, preaching against hypocrisy, preaching against envy, preaching against slander, will not change you. Why? Because the law will not change you. The law is not designed to change you in this way. If we preach against these things, it might make you change your behavior for a little while, but it will never change your heart. Why? Because the gospel is what changes us. The gospel is what brought us into the family of God, and the gospel is what helps us live with one another in the family of God. The gospel made us alive, and the gospel keeps us from killing one another. Listen, you will never be able to love others if you are not constantly dwelling on the life, death, resurrection, and future return of Jesus. You will never be able to put these things away in verse 1 unless you are constantly dwelling on the good news of the gospel. That though sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. And that's exactly why Peter says that we should be craving the gospel in verses 2 through 3 because he knows this is how we grow as Christians. Look at chapter 2 beginning in verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter says that we should be like newborn infants who crave their mother's milk. And babies do crave milk, don't they? Because when that baby is hungry, that baby lets you know that that baby is hungry. Babies get cranky and fussy when they don't get milk. And newborn babies nurse all the time. They love, they long for, they crave their mother's milk. And Peter is saying that this is how we should be as God's children, that we should long for, that we should crave the pure spiritual milk of the word, which is the gospel, which is the eternal word of God. Now, Peter is not saying that we drink milk and then we move on to meat as we grow. Paul and the author of Hebrews refer to spiritual milk that way, that we move on to the meat of the word, 1 Corinthians 3, Hebrews 5. But that's not Peter's point here. Peter is talking about how we remain babies our entire spiritual life 
And so, like babies, we need to crave the milk of the gospel. And we get that craving just like a baby does by tasting it. How does a baby love milk? Because the first time they nurse at their mother's breast, they think, this is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I like. I need to have more of it. We get that craving for the gospel like a baby does by tasting it. And then you want it, more of it, all the time. That's how the gospel works. As Charles Spurgeon said, the gospel has the singular faculty of creating a taste for itself. The gospel has the singular faculty of creating a taste for itself. So when you expose yourself to the gospel, it creates a taste in it for in you for it. When you expose yourself to the gospel, it makes you crave it. You hunger for more of it. You want to talk about it. You want to read about it. You simply cannot get enough of it. Therefore, we need to feed and feast on the gospel all the time. So dig into this book, Grace. Dig into the Bible. Read the Bible. Nurse from this book, if you will. And listen to gospel-centered sermons and gospel-centered songs and read gospel-centered blogs and and gospel-centered books and take a gospel-centered class, ladies, called A Gospel Primer, which is starting in a few weeks that Carrie Way is going to teach through with Laura Ayers. There's a sign-up table right out here, ladies, with a really cool vintage typewriter on it. That book by Milton Vincent, A Gospel Primer, was the book that started this gospel revelation in my own heart in 2000. So ladies, here's an opportunity for you to feast on the gospel by going to this Bible study or hang around for our Grace Seminary classes, which will be starting in February. Immerse yourself in these things. Have gospel-centered conversations. Put the gospel all over your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Send gospel-centered emails to one another. Send gospel-centered texts to one another. I did this last week. I texted two of my friends, Jeff and Mauricio, and I just texted these words just to encourage them. I said, I just wanted you both to know that right now, this very second, you sit under the perpetual favor of your father. He loves each of you as if you were his only child. Wouldn't you like to receive something like that? We should be encouraging each other with the gospel all the time. We should be soaking up the good news of Jesus all the time. We have so much gospel-centered material out there now. Over the last 10 years, God, by his spirit, has swept through the church, and there's gospel-centered books and sermons and blogs all over the place. And if you want to know any of them, email me or Greg or James or Michelle. We'll tell you, here's a great book to get. There's so much stuff out there for you to make your heart come alive as you read about what Jesus has done for you, how he forgives your sins, how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why not hear that good news all the time? Soak it up. Nurse. But what happens when we aren't rehearsing the gospel all the time. 
What happens when we aren't meditating on the gospel, thinking about what Jesus has done for us through his perfect life, his perfect death, his resurrection? What happens when we aren't talking about it, when we aren't thinking about it, when we aren't reading about it, when we aren't listening to sermons about it? What happens to us is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. That's what happens to us. When we neglect the gospel, we suddenly wake up one day and we realize that our lives are full of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. If you have malice in your heart toward another believer, you secretly want evil to befall them, calamity to happen to them. If you rejoice when they suffer, if you think bad thoughts about them, you have lost sight of the gospel. If you are deceptive and you hide the truth of who you are and you fail to see yourself as a sinner in daily need of God's redeeming grace and you have deceived yourself and if you cheat and trick people, then you have lost sight of the gospel. And if you have deceived yourself and you think that you don't need grace as much as the homeless person and you think that you don't need grace as much as the porn star or you don't need grace as much as a stripper or you don't need grace as much as the meth addict, then you have lost sight of the gospel. If you are a hypocrite and you put on a show like you have it all together, everybody else needs to just pull the bootstraps up and and start following Jesus and being obedient and that's how you think because you think you have it all together because you're Mr. or Mrs. Spirituality, You've lost sight of the gospel. If you envy others, you envy their gifts, their talents, their life, then you have lost sight of the gospel. If you slander people and you run around talking behind people's backs and you don't go talk directly to the person who has offended you and instead you talk to everyone else, you have lost sight of the gospel. Just like a baby gets fussy and cranky When they don't get milk, we get fussy and cranky when we have not been feasting on the gospel, when we have not been nursing on the gospel. Please let me say that again. Just like a baby gets fussy and cranky when they don't get milk, we get fussy and cranky when we have not been drinking the pure milk of the gospel. The proof that you have not been feasting on the gospel, proof that you have not been nursing on the pure milk of the gospel is that you are a cranky and fussy person. And that's all of us a lot of the time, isn't it? I'll be the first to admit that. I can get pretty cranky and pretty fussy. And in those moments, if I can stop and check my heart, I realize I've lost sight of the fact that God loves me and he sent his son to save such a cranky, fussy person like me. And if I could think on Jesus in that moment, it would begin to change my heart so that I'm not as cranky and not as fussy. That's why we need to crave the sweet milk of the gospel. Because when you are craving the sweet milk of the gospel, you won't stop until you get a fix. You get addicted to it. You have to have good news all the time. As John Piper said, you have taste buds on your soul's tongue. They were made to lick the lollipop of the gospel. You have taste buds on your soul's tongue and they were made to lick the lollipop of the gospel. 
Oh, Grace, I want you to become gospel addicts, gospel junkies. I want your soul's taste buds to come alive and crave the good news of Jesus, that he forgives you of all of your sins, that there's no condemnation, that he's washed your sins as white as snow. I want you to crave this good news. I want you and me and everyone in this church to be addicted to the gospel. I know I need more of it. I know that I can't get enough of it. I know that I get fussy and cranky when I don't get my gospel milk. And when we talk about craving the eternal word of God, craving the eternal gospel, craving the sweet milk of the gospel, understand that we are just talking about Jesus. We are just talking about craving Jesus when we say that we are addicted to the gospel. Understand this, Grace. Jesus is the sweet milk of the gospel. Jesus is the word of God. So I want us to be a church that is addicted to a person, to Jesus. And that's why Peter says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter knows that his readers have tasted and seen that Jesus is good. He knows that they have feasted on the gospel. He's just reminding them of that again. He's basically saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that Jesus is good. And this is why John Wesley said this in his hymn, Come Sinners to the Gospel Feast. He said, come and partake the gospel feast. Be saved from sin in Jesus' rest. Oh, taste the goodness of your God and eat his flesh and drink his blood. See him set forth before your eyes, that precious bleeding sacrifice, his offered benefits embrace, and freely now be saved by grace. And you will find a gospel feast right here in this book, the Bible, right here in, the, in this, this word. This is where you will find Jesus. This is where your soul's taste buds can come alive right here in this book. Ed Clowney said, what quickens our desire for the life-giving word of God? Peter answers that we know the taste. Our culture makes the image clear. Advertisers spend millions to promote the taste of cola. Reading the Bible is addictive when we begin to get the taste. What we taste in scripture is not simply the variety and power of language. What we taste is the Lord. Those who read the word of God and surely those who teach it must never forget why the word is given and whom it reveals. The word shows us that the Lord is good. His words are sweeter than honey to our taste because in them the Lord gives himself to us. That is a beautiful sentence. A horrible sentence is Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. A beautiful sentence is the Lord gives himself to us. So read this book and read books about this book and listen to sermons about this book and you will find that this has become true of you that you have begun to crave the sweet milk of the gospel. Let's close with a quote by Martin Luther because you can never have too much Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this in his commentary on 1 Peter. 
but it is said to be tasted. When I believe with my heart that Christ has given himself for me and has become my own, and my sin and misery are his, and his life also is mine, when this reaches my heart, then it tastes. For how can I but receive joy and gladness therefrom? I am heartily glad, as though some good friend should bestow on me a hundred florins or gold coins. But as to him whose heart it does not reach, he cannot rejoice himself therewith. But they, ta- but they taste it best who lie in the straits of death, or whom an evil conscience oppresses. For in that case, hunger is a good cook, as we say, that makes the food have a good relish. For the heart and conscience can hear nothing more soothing when they feel their misery. After this, they are anxious. They smell the provision afar off and cannot be satisfied. But that hardened class who live in their own holiness, build on their own works, and feel not their sin and misery, they taste this not. Whoever sits at table and is hungry, he relishes all. He relishes all the food readily. But to him who is previously full... Nothing relishes, but he can only murmur at the most excellent food. Are you thirsty today? Are you hungry? Or are you full, stuffed with your own righteousness, your own goodness? There's this table spread before you today. There is grace, there is good news for weary, hungry sinners. Do you relish it? Do you crave it? Look to Jesus. See Jesus. Think about Jesus and you will begin to crave him and he will satisfy you. Come sinners to the gospel feast. There's no expiration date on gospel milk. Gospel milk will not spoil. Jesus paid it all. Find in him your all in all. Come, sinners, to the gospel feast. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel, that Jesus lived the life that we could never live, the life that you demanded of us, a life of perfection. He fully obeyed the law for us. Jesus died the death that we all deserve. He took the curse of the law upon himself. You made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God so that we could have a righteousness that would enable us to stand in your presence. God, you showed your love for us, your great love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. May we feast on that today and then may we go love our brothers and sisters in Christ. May our lives be true, what Paul prays in Philippians 1, that our love, our love for you, our love for your word, our love for the gospel, our love for other people, that it would overflow the set boundaries with knowledge and all discernment so that we would be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Fill us with the fruit of righteousness that comes through your son to the glory and honor of your name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.